Evolution. I'm Jane Rose. And I'm Rowan Metzner. With us today is Olivia Lara. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you missed part one, we suggest you go back and listen to that one first. In the first episode, we discuss Olivia's knowledge of the history of Ariel, as well as her own personal history, the evolution of the festivals in the U.S. in Europe, Ariel schools, and a handful of other amazing Ariel-related things. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Lydia's apparatus preferences, the development of the equipment, thoughts on Black Lives Matter and racial presentation in the circus and aerial dance, funding, safety, and loads more. We hope you have as much fun listening to this episode as we had recording it. Let's get started. apparatuses do you work with? I do trapeze and hoop and silks and rope and hammock and I've been training straps for the last couple of years but I'm not good at it. I just really love it and do it because I want to get better at it but I'm not. Well that's how we start all of them right? Right. <laughs> this one is just taking so much longer than the other one. The ones I do, I, I do them quite regularly. I teach most of them. And when I perform, if they need me to do any of them, I will do any of them. But my favorite is dance trapeze. Do you have an understanding of any of the histories of any of them? No, to be honest, not, not much. Uh, I mean, trapeze, I know about, you know, flying trapeze, I guess what is the, the original trapeze. And then at some point someone somewhere decided to what happens if we don't fly in it and we just start moving with it and then at some point someone else had the even more brilliant idea for me <laughs> to hang it in one point and dance with it move around and use it as a dance partner um, but I don't know I really don't know who who was the um, the person I feel terrible about that because I think at one point I did come across that, the, the woman that decided to dance with the trapeze and, and she's still around and I should do some more research and, and read about her. I believe that I looked her up and I read about it and her journey and she no longer, or at the time that I researched her, she wasn't offering any workshops because I, I remember thinking, oh, it would be amazing if I could go train with her, you know? But I don't think she she was doing it. And if she was, it was just very sporadic. And, but now that you talk about it, I think I should go back and, and find her and see if she's doing anything. And something, Rowan, that's occurring to me is, as we're talking with you, Lydia, um, is we should also look into uh, the development of climbing gear in conjunction with aerial apparatus. Because I, um, Lydia, I'm doing another podcast right now. And one of the, the people that we looked at through one of the themes that we, we sort of picked was a, a man named Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia. And he originally made climbing gear. And pretty much everything that he made in the 60s 
became a template for what we now use in terms of our locking carabiners. And even what made me think about it specifically was your reference to taking, you know, first a swinging trapeze, then making a double point stratic, and then taking it into a single point with a swivel. Nothing could be a swivel before they made the swivels that were stolen from climbing gear. Right. And that all happened, I believe, in between the 60s and mid-70s. Yeah, that's another side that is going to be so interesting to research and how we, or aerialists and circus, stole all the gear, you know, from <laughs> from climbing. Because it was, all of it is still for climbing, right? Yeah. There, there's still a lot of things that we use in aerial that we're not supposed to use for aerial. But Creatively we, misusing it. Yeah. And, and we are lucky that people have taken the time to test them for our purpose, so we know we can use them. But the original makers of those, um, of that hardware, they created it not with us in mind, but climbers in mind. Are there any aerial manufacturers? That are specifically for aerial, I think now, Rock Exotica, some of their gear does include aerial use. and. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm I'm I think so. I mean, for example, that um, that new flying the Monarch. What's it called? You, you probably seen it, Jane. That it's a it's basically a motor, so an aerialist can lift an or another aerialist. Oh yeah, that was something I think that Ray Pierce was fabricating. Yeah. It, it's like a suitcase winch. And I think he called it, yeah, like, it was like butterfly or, yeah. Something like that. And I think that specifically, they, they made it for aerialists or with aerialists in mind. Mm -hmm. It wasn't designed for, for climbing. It was designed for, for aerial work. Yeah. But yeah, so much of it came from either climbing or like stage rigging. Like, I still vividly remember the first time I went to Versailles and uh, everyone looked at me like I was insane for being there as someone who clearly was not a rigger. <laughs> right, and that's so awesome because the first time I went to Versailles, I mean, years later, you know, I, I was in Texas and you know, it wasn't until the last few years that I've been here in LA, but when I showed up to Versailles to buy stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm an aerialist. Oh, yes, how can I help you? We have all the things you guys need. But that was because people like you had shown up already being like, oh, I need this for this, and this is how I use it. They're like, okay, great. We'll sell you that really sturdy metal ring <laughs> that you want for something that we don't understand. But now they, they do, some of the guys at least do you know what we do with this stuff, you know, and have a better understanding of what we want and what we need. Yeah. So uh, what types of aerial performance styles do you find that you gravitate towards? You talked about it a little bit already, but sort of expanding more specifically on what you love to perform. This is right now, I'm in a, in a weird place, I think, because, because of the quarantine and, and I don't mean to hijack the podcast. If you guys you, you know, don't want to talk about any of this, we can, we can completely change or you can just not use any of this but um you know because of the black lives movement that has started here in the country and now it's 
it's expanding and there are a lot of protests and, and, and people standing up all over the world. Um, I recently became part of a group of um, circus artists and aerialists online and it's basically black people and people of color, you know, black and brown people um, who are circus performers and we've been meeting and talking about um, what our place has been in circus and how we are cast and how we are portrayed on stage and how we are used in performances and and how we adapt to whatever is given to us it's not you know it's not just that people are you know casting us at one stereotype but we are complicit in it you know we decide to participate in those performances and and look the way whoever is putting up the show wants us to look we say yes and we do the work and it's been it's been really interesting and a lot of the artists that i've been meeting with and talking to are from central and south america and they and a lot of them live in europe so their experience has been how they are seen in european countries and then a, a few of us live in the u.s and and yeah and at this point it's been i meant that questioning and trying to understand what has been my part in circus and how I've been cast in certain shows or how I have not been cast in certain shows for the way I look or the way I don't look and thinking about if I have had much of a choice on the work that I do or if I have been more, oh, I have to make this type of work and this type of look and this type of art just so I can be cast or so I can be included in this type of show or that type of show. And is it really what I want to do or the type of work that I want to create or has it been more? And, and maybe, and you can tell me, Jane, as well, that may not only be because, you know, I'm um, Hispanic and Mexican and I have a look and I have a certain culture, but you know that if you create something you can't be just like, oh, I want to create this because I love it. You also have to think, or maybe you have thought, oh, I, can I sell this? Is this something that someone is going to buy and want to put in your show? Well, you do your own show, so. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, I, I, I got frustrated with that one and went a different route and said, I'm just going to make my own stuff because I don't feel like having to justify the artistic choices. Right. In, in terms of it being sellable. I think where then I, I think empathize because I, you know, I'm European descent. So, so the way that I've been viewed, I, I can't necessarily identify with the conversation, but I can empathize with it where it talks about, you know, people of color, black, brown, et cetera, and the way that it's been presented and something that I have studied quite a lot, not through the lens of circus and dance per se, but through the lens of film and media right. is yeah. looking at those representations. And so I can really um, attach to what you're describing in terms of sort of observing what is, what is the way that you've been, that, that, we've pres that we've chosen to present certain groups and certain identities. Right. And how do we now adjust that? 
moving forward. Yeah. And I think also as women in um, show business, right? It's okay, how do you look? How, how good do you look in this tiny little outfit, right? <laughs> it's also a big part of it. And, yeah. and circus and aerial dance does have that element that we, you have to be very fit. You know, people want to see beautiful, m muscular bodies on stage doing this acrobatic and flying moves in an elegant way. You know, we have, there's a very specific type of body, long mm -hmm. and lean and muscular with a six pack or eight pack and all the women are little and all the men are tall and strong, right? So we, we try <laughs> to yeah. meet that. Yeah. Well, because there is, I mean, it's like, it's, there's so much of it that, that functions out of entertainment. Right. And entertainment is escapism and it's selling, you know, it's like when it is selling stuff, it's selling fantasy. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I went through periods of time where I refused to create characters that anyone could view as sexy right like, just wouldn't do it i would go the exact opposite i would go grotesque because i'm like nope i'm not buying into this bullshit and and i think here in the u.s we have a a bigger challenge for us as artists right we we, we have to be more entertainers and be able to put on a show that people are going to pay tickets to come and see or an act that people are going to want to put on their show so we can sell and a big part of that is that here in the U.S., we really don't have a lot of support for the arts. There are some grants, but there are thousands and thousands of people are applying for one, right? And so it, I think it makes it a little bit more challenging for us as artists to think, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. It's going to be my art, and, and I don't have another job, but and I'm not going to eat, but I, you, we can, we're in like, and, and I keep going, and I'm sorry, I keep going back to Europe just because that has been my other experience, just going through these festivals. And it was because of the festivals that I was able to get more work over there that I was able to go back every year. But I do see a lot of the artists over there, they have a little bit more freedom to create whatever type of work they want. And it could be the more abstract and strange to the super entertaining, super comical, or not at all, and super intellectual. They really have the opportunity to do more of what they really want to do because they do get a little bit more support from their different governments, either local or national. Because of these festivals, they, have, they usually have a platform where they can present their work, even if it's not ready to be sold or not ready to go on tour they have the opportunity to bring it into one of these festivals and try it out with an audience and have a, a bunch of aerialists from, young aerialists from all over the world be supportive and watch it and provide feedback. So I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I, I've had the opportunity to work in a couple of different shows and with a couple of different companies that are not necessarily what I would like to do but it has been good work and it has been good really amazing groups of people i'm always happy to work with the different artists that i get to work with and then i get paid for it so it's it's great i can't complain but it's not necessarily the the kind of work that i that i would ambition or love to do yeah i, I don't know i would like to do 
more um, circus aerial in theater. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I would like to do, like a, a more of a theatrical show that has aerial dance as one of the many elements. Well, you should definitely chat with Tavi and I about deconstruction arts because that's what we're trying to do. Yes. And the more people we can involve in it, the better, in our opinion. Yeah, I would really love to be involved and make a piece of work that is theatrical, that has a good message or a challenge for the audience that come and see it. And not everybody has to agree with that, but maybe some people do and some people don't, but that it creates some dialogue and it has a, a nice story with a beginning and a middle and an end and, and characters that when they go in the air they're still those characters and not just not not just sexy you know but that they actually have a story and they resolve it through it something like that agreed stay tuned we'll be right back of training did you do to teach? Well, I started teaching very soon after I started Ariel, maybe a year later. Really? And yes, yeah, I know. And now I see it and I'm like, what? What were you doing? You had no business teaching anyone. That Then that's the other part of Ariel, right? Unlike other circus disciplines, Ariel is very expensive because it's, it requires a lot of expensive things. You require a building that has enough height. You require all this uh, gear and apparatuses and that alone is just pricey, right? So in order to be able to to offer it to people, you're going to have to offer it at a, at a higher price than, than other types of art. And I, I was taking silks classes and then I saw there was trapeze and I wanted to take trapeze as well. And and I quickly understood that once a week, it was just not gonna cut it. I wasn't gonna get better training once a week. And I wanted to train more and more. Um, and all of my money was going into that I could do. So at one point I was like, I need to start teaching this because if I was a teacher, then I could get, I could come in to train for free. I was like, oh, that is happening, I'm gonna, get this certification to become a teacher uh, with Amy. Amy has a, Amy L has a, a program where you can become certified. And I think I did silks first, um, the beginner silks certification, and it was like beginner level one, where people are on the ground, you know, they don't get off the floor. Maybe you put on a footlock and that's it. And I became certified with that and I started teaching so I could learn more. That was really the reason why. And I did my certifications for silk, uh, silks, trapeze, and hoop through her program. I, and then I went to NECA, to the New, New England Center for Circus Arts. They would offer weekend programs. And I did several of those throughout the first couple of years that I was, that I was training. And then I did a rigging class also through them and at the end of that first rigging class I was like I have so many more questions than answers so I'm not touching a single piece of hardware until I take another class I mean it wasn't that the class was bad but it opened my eyes to this is way bigger than I have ever known and there is a lot more 
that I need to learn about it. So don't touch anything. And then when I went to Ireland, they do have over there out of the UK, uh, rigging certification for aerials. And I, and I did that for aerial arts. Yeah. So I think I spent like three years taking all these certifications and uh, for aerial dance and then for rigging. Do you think that there is a standard qualification that teachers need? I don't. I don't because I don't necessarily think that taking a certification will make you a better teacher because nowadays there are so many. A lot of different studios have created their own certifications. There is an organization at the American Youth Circus Educators, they, they have come with some standards and they, they are trying to, I don't think they're necessarily trying to force everyone into a standard, but they are trying to put some guidelines out there just for best practices. And they're great. And I think that some studios are trying to incorporate those guidelines and try to come to an agreement of what, what would be beneficial. But I don't think that we would get to a, to a point where we can all agree and, and standardize everything here in the U.S. And part of that is because this has grown. Everything that we've been talking about, you know, it has grown so big. It's so popular. So many people around the country and around the world are doing it. So many different certifications, different schools of thought in how we should train. And it's still fairly new. So I think it's going to take a while before anything like that happens. I do think that is beneficial to, if you do some research and find a certificate program that if you have a teacher, you know, an aerialist that is a good teacher and they recommend that, or, you know, a couple of people that recommend that, I think it's, it's good to have to take that class because being a good aerialist doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher. You can be excellent, an excellent aerialist. You have amazing technique, but that doesn't really mean that you would know how to teach others. And you, and why would you know how to teach others? Why would you know how to spot other people or what to tell bodies that are different than your own how to do one thing or another? So I think taking teacher certification class or a teacher program will help you understand that and maybe find another ways and how to communicate and how to explain things and how to break things down, how to create progressions. I think it would, it helps. I don't necessarily think that is the key, but I think it is helpful. That makes sense. When you were talking about how you were learning and like you describing the egg roll or the ball, you know, and it's like one of the things that can be so frustrating when you're trying to learn and you have different teachers like there is no standardization to like what things are called do you think that that is a benefit or a a hindrance to creativity i don't i don't know i don't don't think you could standardize it it's another one that i don't think you could standardize it just because i guess so many people are doing it and I, i guess there are some basic skills that we all know right but even, you know, we speak English in this country and we do Ariel. And then, for example, in the UK, they also speak English, but they call things completely different than us. <laughs> and, you know, you just go to different countries, even if they speak the same language that you, they, they talk about um, the skills, completely different names. And I think it could be cultural, like something that makes sense to where it, 
where you live or the way you talk is beneficial because maybe that brings something into your mind that makes sense. So I think trying to standardize it, it would take away from that. Um, because the naming things have um, a cultural reference. Unless we try to make them really, really, like, really describe what you're doing in the most plain way, right? When you get or, epically long names. <laughs> yes, that's the other thing. It will be so long. <laughs> to make sense. The knee hook rotation swivel thing, like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's also so much richness in, in naming things the way they're named, right? Like, like a skin the cat. I mean, who came up with that one, right? I would like to know the history of that one. I, I have a friend who started calling it skin the carrot, said, which totally confused me the first time she said it. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And she's like, oh, I stopped calling it skin the cat because I thought that was gruesome. And I'm like, well, you're right. But now I don't know what you're telling me to yeah and that's always fun though no when you're in a class and you have the same group of students one of them names something and then your small group of students know what that is you know now it has this um shared experience and shared story it may not be the, the best for the whole community you know and it not may help a new student understand that but it creates this bonding with your own group of students and I think in a way that's also beneficial yeah it's true and it, it's, it's interesting because as you're talking I'm flashing back to what you said about Ariel getting really popular and attributing it to social media and how sometimes that confuses the the naming even more because right. someone will see something on social media and start doing it and then they call it something different right and someone else is like no that's the blah 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 and it's my move and you're like oh jesus right and that yeah and you bring up a good point that now it's like that's my move but at the same time that you're creating it here, there's a Russian girl doing it and then someone in Brazil doing it, right? And it might be slightly different, but all three of you came up with this very unique, nothing is unique anymore, but you know, when you find it, you're like, oh, this is so unique. And then there are 10 other people somewhere in the world also doing it at the same time. Do you think that people who are practicing aerial should have a minimum knowledge about rigging and safety and apparatus safety, personal safety, et cetera? Like as a student, do you think that, it a, that there's a, a responsibility for them to know that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think that you will necessarily get it right away when you first start, but I think that as you continue to do it, you, your coach and teacher should start sharing with you some of that information. And then at some point, you should take also responsibility as a practitioner, you know, as someone that wants to do it, you should also take some responsibility and what do I need to know to keep myself safe, not only about what I'm doing with my body, but how is my, my dance partner apparatus rig into the ceiling right and and i think it's it's your your teacher your coach has responsibility in it but also you as a participant have responsibility in and becoming more aware and learn and again I, I don't think that right when you come into your first class may not be the most useful to get bombarded with a lot of information about it 
but as you slowly come to classes, you will learn the moves, the skills, the tricks, and what, you know, as, as your body learns what to do, you, your mind should also learn what, what you're doing, how it's being done, what keeps you safe, not only safe from falling and breaking your neck, but also safe from not hurting your shoulder or your hip or, you know, your, your abs. Agreed. This is a little bit prompted because of what's happening in the world, but it was happening before of um, people starting to offer content, not just like it's on Instagram and I can stumble across it and try and figure out what they did, but more formalized online teaching. And do you have any thoughts about teaching Ariel in particularly online? I find it very intimidating, to be honest. Well, first of all, I think that anytime that you're practicing aerial, it, it's important that you have someone else with you, if not in the room, in the house, in the same uh, building. And, and I'm not going to lie and say that every time that I train, there's someone with me, because that's not true. I've often shopped to the studio and I'm by myself and I don't love it. To be honest, I don't love it, but sometimes I do have to do it because I can't always have a, a person there with me. But it, it is a dangerous activity and even doing simple things, if you're distracted, if something happens, you know, you do want to have someone there just in case. So having a student on the other side of the monitor, I would find it very intimidating that I would be just so worried that I can't help that I can't because if I'm looking at you I'm only looking at you from this side from this angle I'm not looking at the other side of your body and the other side of the apparatus don't have the best perspective to to see what's happening so I find it scary that I will not be able to to give you the best cues and the best clues or, or give you the safest information if I'm not able to see you in 3D. But the world has changed and I don't know when we're going to be able to go back to normal. And for a lot of teachers now, it's either online or, or you make no money, right? So I think we, we're going to have to adapt and find ways to, to do it, keeping your students safe or trying trying something different, come, coming up with something something different to continue to teach. Do you feel the same way about stuff that's more like standalone pre-recorded video or tutorial style? Is that better or even worse <laughs> in terms of the like, so it's like I would go in and I would record the skill and I'd say everything that I would say to, you know, to you and Rowan, but then I would never ever actually see you try it. I've had seen some really good tutorials that are that have been put out like that. But then at that point, then there's more of the responsibility on the student. I, I used to also worry about students learning from tutorials, to be honest, before. I used to worry about them because what if you don't, you know, you don't have all the different details, if you're missing a piece of information. But I, I have seen some really good videos, some really good tutorials. And, and then I think it, now it just depends on you as a student that you're gonna go try it. Then you have to take a little bit more responsibility for, for, your, for the work that you're doing and how you're moving and how high you're going in the air. I don't know, I think it's also scary, Jane. I think it is. I'm, I'm with you. I, I wish I could, I would like to, because I'm gonna have to start doing something soon, <laughs> you know, yeah. in this time. 
but I don't know if I, I don't know if I can. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was telling Rowan before you hopped on, I just today I was teaching hammock and uh, and it was just a, you know, it was a move in the hammock and the silk was just in the wrong place. Like it just wrapped her leg the wrong way. And it meant that she couldn't complete the, she wasn't in any danger, but like she couldn't see it or feel it. Right, right. And so you can be doing stuff wrong and you don't even know. Right, yeah, that's the thing. You could be doing it wrong and you don't know. And in this art, if you're doing something wrong and you don't know, it could be fine. It just is not the same loop, but it also could be very dangerous. Yeah. Even right now that we are able to teach, but we have to keep distance in this new, so hard, I wanna, and I have been staying away from teaching really the, the more challenging moves where I will typically spot students. I have, you know, I haven't done it because I don't know how am I how I'm going to feel about just staying six feet away from you while you try it. Chances are you may slip down, you know, if you are not full, if you panic for a second. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I, I I always try not to give students things that I don't that I know they're not prepared to do. But sometimes that that little hand on your back or just a little bit of support the first time you try it. It gives you that confidence to really go for it. And now that we won't be able to do it, I am, I'm, I'm really thinking about how I'm going to adapt to it and, and support my students the best possible way. And I still don't know. Yeah, like a big long pointer. Like you have a pointer, but you need like an, a pointer with an arm. With a soft, you know, cushiony. Like the big Mickey glove? Yes, yeah. So in case you fall into it, you're fine. Or if I smack you with it a little bit, you're fine, you know? <laughs> yeah. You use a pointer? That's actually, I, because uh, there's sometimes where I look at someone and I'm like, just move your hip there. I have a walking stick that I can just give you a little tap. Just a little tap. I mean, I wouldn't do it when you're in a precarious position where you may fall on top of the stick. No, no. But when I can see that you just need to move your, you know, your hip that way a tiny bit, then I can tap you with it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And then we need the hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got to talk to you. That was fun. Yes, yeah, thank you both so much. For thank this. you. I can't wait for, you know, to listen to it. And I hope you find a lot more about the history of Ariel as you talk to more people. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Aerial Evolution. In our next episode, we are going to be digging into a conversation with Chantal McCormick, the artistic director of the Irish Aerial Dance Company, Digit Feet, and founder of the Irish Aerial Dance Festival. And we would love to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, things that you'd love to hear in an upcoming episode, come and find us on Instagram at Aerial Evolution Pod or on Facebook. And both of those links will be in the show notes as well. And as always, stay tuned for future episodes with other amazing aerialists releasing every two weeks. Until next time. <laughs>